Well, we appreciate you, musicians, singers, leading us today. We really do. He's a good God, isn't he? So I'm just a little undone by that song, so still kind of emotional and raw. As you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Just let it sink in, you know? Everything. Cover the kids' ears for a second. Every screw-up you ever made. Every single one. Every nasty, ungrateful, unkind thought. Everything. You come to him and it's gone. It's gone. Isn't that incredible? The God of creation built a hill, built a tree, stood there and died for us. Isn't it just incredible? My goodness, what a savior. What a God. And uh, these guys didn't know because I've been away this week. I haven't communicated with anybody what I'm speaking on today. And uh, I looked in the bulletin just to see what Ruth had put in. Is Ruth in? She's out the back. And uh, she's putting a quote from John 14. Uh, I'm speaking on John 14 a little later. In the start of our worship, you know, we've got Katie encouraging us to reach out and touch your hem. If you don't know what that story is about, we're going to come to it in a few minutes. It's the center of what I want to speak on today. And uh, I've just been thinking, we've just finished that, that series on stewarding and the things that God calls us to steward. And I'm just mindful that we're in a really weird place as a nation right now. It just feels like we're, there's all kinds of forces at work among us that are seeking to pull us apart. And uh, there's something that the, the leaders of the church are doing at the moment, the elders and the elders with the deacons are spending time thinking through what kind of a people is God calling us to be right now? What's, what's our vision for what God's calling us to do? We're revisiting some of those values together of what it is that God is calling us to do and to be. And for the next few weeks, with a bit of a break in between because there's some fun stuff happening, uh, and in the run-up to Advent, and then as we get closer to Christmas, we'll do very, very Adventy things. But for the next kind of four ordinary Sundays, I want us to revisit these fire values, these things that we just have on a banner here that we look at every week. They're, they come from Partners in Harvest, uh, which some of you kind of are plugged into and you're very aware of. Some of you, it's a kind of fringe thing. It's on the bulletin. You don't really know what that's about. It's a network that we're part of, a network of churches that is a global network of churches uh, that kind of is related to what God did in Toronto in 1994 and the outpouring of the Father's love, which has just continued to be poured out on the church. And our relationship is with a number of churches around the world, but one of the things that we kind of sign up to and say, yeah, this kind of describes what it is to be part of that family is that it has these values at the heart of it. And, uh, and I wanted us to spend some time thinking about those values, and the first of those values is that the Father's love is revealed through Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to think about today, the Father's love. The Father's love. And, uh, and I want to spend a little time just reflecting on that and trying to get in touch with some of that and, and why it's important to us as a, as a people who God has called to be different, uh, as, but yet as a people who are called to live here in this country at this time, in our nation's history, in our own history, what are the things that we can kind of cling on to that form us and shape us that, that might have an effect on who you vote for, but more importantly, have an effect on how we live and how we live day to day in this culture at this time, a culture that's pulling itself apart. What are the kind of values that might form us and shape us? Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking thoughts for the last 
week or so about God's love especially and thinking about what I'm sharing this morning. Uh, it's what my kind of head when I'm kind of driving or is in neutral and stuff is what I'm thinking about and I'm thinking all about the Father's love. And So thank you for those who led us this morning into that intimacy and that experience of Father's love. We're going to think about intimacy in a few weeks' time. Um, the writer to Hebrews, and some of you will know that Hebrews is rapidly becoming my favorite book in the whole Bible. It was John for a long time, but I'm just so stuck in Hebrews right now. Hebrews begins this way. It has echoes of that passage that we looked at from Colossians chapter 1 a little while ago about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This is how the, the writer to Hebrews begins. Uh, with this statement about the fact that God is a God who speaks, that God has communicated. And the writer says, until this time and in our, in our past, as a people who've sought to live in relationship with him, he's spoken to us through the prophets. People have come, who've heard from God, and they've shared with us what it is they've heard God say. And until that point in history, until the point that the writer to Hebrews is referring to, that's been the human story, a story of a people who have had folks who have been like intermediaries, who've heard from God what God says, and then have shared that with other people, the prophet. That's been, until this moment in history, says the writer to Hebrews, this is how it's been. God is a God who communicates, but he's used prophets to do it. He's sent people who will, he'll speak to, and then they'll speak to us. And then he goes on to say this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He is the exact representation of the Father. Exact representation of what God is like. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Until this moment in time, the writer to Hebrews is saying, we've had people come and they've said, God has spoken and this is what God has said. And God has been gracious and has been kind and has sent prophets. But now... God has come. God has come. God has come and lived among us. He sent his son, his own son, his one and only son, to come and reveal to us exactly what God is like. He's the exact representation of his being. And so what the writer to Hebrews is saying is, if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know what our heavenly father is like, we look to Jesus. Because until this moment, we've looked to the prophets and we've seen what the prophets have said. But now we look to Jesus. Why? Because he is exactly what God is like. Jesus has come not just to tell us what God says, but to reveal God to us in himself. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's who Jesus is. And the writer to Hebrews tells us that part of what that revelation means is that he will die in our place to deal with all of the wrong things we've ever done once and for all. And that he then has a victory over that death, raises from death, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And friends, I just need to pause right now because I don't know where everybody in this room is at. 
But I trust and I hope that you're in that place where you have put your faith in that Jesus. That the Jesus who died to deal with the issues in your life once and for all and then defeated death and rose again is your saviour. That you've put your faith and your trust in him. Not just that you're fascinated or interested, but that that is your trust. That's what your life depends on. I pray that it is. And the writer to Hebrews says, this is who God is. He's the one that comes and gives himself for us and who reveals himself to us. God speaks to us, not anymore just through those people who hear from God and then tell us what God says, but through a person, Jesus. And by looking at him, we see what God is like. By looking at him, we understand who God is. That's why we have this value. The Father's love is revealed through Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see today is that when we look at Jesus, we see the Father's love. The Father's love. Whenever I speak about the Father... I just have to pause and reflect on the fact that for some of us, our experience of being fathered wasn't the most positive thing in our lives. What we have revealed in Jesus is a perfect father. Whenever any of us, as fathers especially, but any of us, measure ourselves against Jesus, we recognize that we all fall short. And so I am not pointing the fingers at any particular father's but some of us, our experience of being fathered was a long way away from the Jesus model of fathering. <laughs> and so when I stand here today and talk about a father, perhaps for some of us, associated with that word, father, are some things that are not associated with it for other people. I pray and I hope that many of us have got that experience of being fathered and that experience of being fathered was of compassion and care and love and provision and nurture that fathers help create a safe space in which we discovered who we are, we discover the things that we're good at, where we were allowed to fail and it wasn't the end of the world, where we were encouraged, where we knew protection, and yes, where we knew some discipline and correction, where we knew what it was to have somebody say no to us and mean it. But for some of us, we didn't have that. And so when I stand here and talk about father, overlaid onto that is a lack of nurture, there's sometimes a lack of discipline, perhaps a more chaotic experience, more violence perhaps than we would ever have wanted to experience or we'd ever want to have a father visit upon children. And perhaps even worse. And so I want to just say, I see you. I know you're here. And we're here together. Working out what it means to have had an experience of father that wasn't great and yet becoming to a father who reveals to us in Jesus what father should be. And we stand in the middle of that experience and we're trying to make sense of those things. And we're on a healing journey of discovering more of the father's love and leaving behind some stuff that we've experienced. I know you're here and I see you and I want you to know that um, we're going through this together and that prayer works. We talk about this father... And what is revealed in Jesus is exactly how the Father loves. And I want us to look at just three simple illustrations from the life of Jesus that reveal something of the Father's love. The first of those comes from Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 7, famous words. You'll be familiar with them, but feel free to turn your Bible on, open up your Bible, and uh, turn to uh, Matthew 7, verse, we're going to read from verse 7, very, very well-known words. Jesus, speaking to this great crowd of people who've gathered to hear from him, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. <clears throat> it's a great image, isn't it? Your child comes to you and says, uh, Dad or Mum, can I have bread? Here's a stone. Can I have some fish? Here's a snake. Well, it's a silly story in one sense. And Jesus purposefully here presents us with a daft image, but to make a really important point. If something within us, something in our nature, us being human beings with all of the brokenness and frailties that we carry, if we know straight away that it would be wrong to give a stone to a child who asks for bread, if we know just because of the, the kind of nature that is within us, that innate sense of right and wrong, that if a child would say to us, can I have some fish, we wouldn't hand them a poisonous cobra. If we know that that's wrong, how much more does the Father who created us, who made us, who is pure, how much more does he give good gifts? What's more, he knows what we need. He knows all that we need to sustain life, to live a meaningful life. He knows what we need to be nurtured. He knows what we need to be fulfilled in every single way. He knows that. And so when we think about what Jesus is revealing, he reveals to us the Father's love in this, in that he tells us there's a, a speaking out. There's a teaching. And as we look at Jesus' teaching, we see him time and time again teaching and speaking out about the Father and teaching us what the Father is like. He uses his words to do it. This is what the Father's like. And there are many, many times when Jesus teaches about what the Father's like and things that he'll say, and he'll use his teaching to tell us that, that God is spirit, that we must worship him in spirit and truth. He'll use his teaching to teach us that God's kingdom is coming and uh, it's the kingdom of a Father. He'll teach us in many different ways, but Jesus uses teaching to reveal the Father to us. But he does far more than that. I want to turn to the second story I want us to think about, and you'll find it in Luke. You'll find it in Luke chapter 8. Sorry, I'm not done crying yet. And this may well just end me for the day, this story, so forgive me cover my embarrassment and turn to the person next to you and say something nice if that happens, but there we go. Uh, Luke chapter 8, we read this incredible, incredible story. We're going to start reading from uh, verse 40. <clears throat> now when Jesus had returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. So picture this scene. 
There's Jesus, and there's a crowd. It's a big crowd. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So picture this scene. I want you to get there. If you're the kind of person who has a, a visual imagination, I want you to engage that imagination and picture that scene. It's a scene of Jesus, and I don't know how you picture Jesus, but however you picture Jesus, imagine him there and imagine a crowd all around him and then imagine this, this religious leader, this significant person, this community leader. I wonder if you can picture him. He's got a daughter who's about 12. I've got a daughter who's about 12. Some of us have got a daughter who's about 12. And she's dangerously ill. Like deathbed ill. And Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus the healer, is in town. And there's a crowd of people surrounding him, but you are definitely not put off by a crowd. And so what you do is, you work your way through this crowd, and you kneel at his feet. You're there at his feet. In the middle of a crowd, you've come and you've knelt down, and you've captured his attention. You've wanted to capture his attention. You want all of his attention to be on you in that moment because there is something you're going through which is the most horrific thing you've ever faced in your life, the potential loss of your 12-year-old daughter. And so you capture his attention and Jesus looks down on you. And there you are, this significant leader, but you've made yourself humble. Jesus was on his way. The crowds almost crushed him. Jesus agrees to come. Jairus stands up and starts to lead him through the crowd towards his house. The house that contains the 12-year-old girl who is at death's door. Now there's another scene. There's a woman in that crowd who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. I want you to realize what this means for this lady. This dear lady, who don't even know her name. This dear lady has been menstruating for 12 years. Now, physically, I have no idea what that does. I mean, just how utterly drained and without energy, how ill and weak would she be feeling from 12 years of this? Add on to that that for 12 years she's been seeking healing for this, but nothing has happened. Now, let me just point out to you some of the consequences of this. She's in a Jewish culture which means she can't go to be with the people where the Jewish meeting happens in the segregated synagogue type space. She can't go to that place because she's ritually unclean. And if she goes into that place, she would make it unclean. And anybody who spent time with her would become unclean. She's not supposed to be mingling with people because in that time and in that space, according to the law, she should have separated herself away during the time when she's menstruating. So she is somebody who is physically incredibly weak. She's somebody who socially has been ostracized. People know this is happening. It's a hard thing to hide in the culture, and it's probably less hidden than we imagine it might have been in that culture. So people know this is happening. She's socially kind of marginalized because of this, but also spiritually, the means of community and of accessing 
worship and teaching and drawing close to God that the rest of the people would access, she couldn't access. So she is physically depleted. She is emotionally, at the end of herself, for 12 years, she's used all of her resources trying to get well. She's spiritually, where is she at spiritually? I'll tell you this much, she's got some faith in her. And socially, she's completely ostracized. She's in that crowd too. And while Jesus is rushing to get to the home of this 12-year-old, there's a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years right there. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Now she felt that. Something happened in her body. She knew it. There was a transfer of power. Something left Jesus and it went into her. In that moment, she just knew something changed. A healing took place. Now, some people have read this passage and they said, oh, well, I wonder how she might have known. It's not like, you know, it's an obvious thing to notice straight away that the menstruation had stopped. She wouldn't be able to know that straight away. I want to tell you, she felt power go into her. She felt it. Something, a divine transference took place in that moment and healing and wholeness came into her. My guess is that after 12 years of having a lack of energy and a lack of strength, all of a sudden, there's something inside of her. It's like, my goodness, energy's been restored. You see, when Jesus heals, he heals completely. Energy's been restored. Life has entered into her again. Some change has taken place. Perhaps she felt something in her belly. Perhaps she felt a change take place. Perhaps something tightened. Who knows? But she felt something in her body. She wasn't the only one that felt something. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And they all denied it. And Peter said, Master, the people are crowding around you and pressing against you. Peter's kind of saying, Jesus, you know, we're in the middle of a crowd. You're pushing through this crowd to get to Jairus' house. Jesus, we're on our way to Jairus' house, important Jewish leader. If he comes a follower, everybody follows. Let's just get going to Jairus' house. That's where the one we have to heal is. What do you mean who touched you? There's a crowd pressing against you. And Jesus says, someone touched me I know that power has gone out from me. The crowd has stopped. You see, Jesus has stopped walking at this point. He's pushing through this crowd and he just stops. Who touched me? And Peter says, I didn't touch you. Andrew says, I didn't touch you. Judas says, I didn't touch you, but I would for money. Jesus says, no, somebody touched me. Like, there's a crowd of people pressing to get close. But they weren't all people full of faith. They weren't all people reaching out. They weren't all people who God's power was touching in that moment in a way that brings transformation and healing and change. But for somebody it was. For that lady it was. And there's something really important that takes place right here. You see, for God's healing to be complete in this life, there's something more that needs to take place than just a physical restoration. Jesus has to stop and he has to notice her. Some real power has gone out of me, says Jesus. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she comes trembling and falls at his feet. Isn't that interesting? 
So Jairus was keen to be seen by Jesus, presses through the crowd, falls at his feet, wants to be the fullness of his attention, and, and so Jesus would come with him to do the important bit of healing, and yet there's this other woman who wants to be hidden in the crowd. She wants to just kind of get in the back. She's, what is she worried about? Well, she's worried that you know, there might be somebody in that crowd who says, hang on a minute, what are you doing touching this rabbi? You just made him unclean. We're going to stone you. What are you doing here? She faces social rejection. She faces spiritual rejection. But there was something in her that wasn't spiritually dead. There was life there. The life that said, if I can just touch his cloak, that's all it's going to take. And what she wanted was to just touch his cloak and then melt into the crowd again. Jesus doesn't want that for her. Jesus has got another story here for her. Jesus just stops dead. I mean, just picture the scene. He's rushing through this crowd. The crowd are with him. People are crowding to get close to him. This is the famous Jesus on his way to Jairus' house, and he stops dead and said, who touched me? And she knows that something's going to happen now. And so she comes, and very different from Jairus, who falls down at Jesus' feet to be noticed, this time she comes, and there's no confidence in her. There's no sense of, please, please, pleading with him, she's coming and she's kind of scared and she doesn't know what's going to happen. It's almost like she's getting ready to plead for forgiveness for touching him. She comes trembling and falls at his feet. And in front of all of these people, now every eye, I mean, just imagine it, this is the crowd, they're all pressing in, and she comes to Jesus' feet and Jesus says, who's touched me? I wonder what they're thinking. What's she doing there? What's he going to do to her now? He's upset. What's happened? Someone's touched her. And in the presence of all of those people, in front of all of that crowd, she said why she touched him. And she says she knew that she'd been instantly healed. Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus's what? Daughter who was how old? And was at death's door. And in the middle of that crowd, in the middle of what everybody would see was really important, that he gets to Jairus' house, Jesus stops to spend time with a woman who's had a different kind of death that's been going on for her for 12 years. The death of strength, the death of spiritual life, the death of social relationships. Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter But to this lady now who's kneeling at his feet, trembling and in fear, he reaches down, and I just, this is poetic license, so forgive me, but I just kind of, you know, see this woman kneeling at his feet, head down, this is what I did, in fear for what's going to happen, and he has to touch her. I mean, he's Jesus, he touches her. Does he touch her shoulder? Does he put a hand under her chin and ask her to kind of ease her face up so she's looking at him? Does he, I mean, is she sitting like this? Does he hold her hand? I don't know how you picture that. But he says... He says to this woman, this woman who's been on the fringes, this woman who's felt that she's nothing, this woman who's nobody importance daughter, he says to her something he doesn't say to anybody else recorded in scripture. He says, daughter, 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 your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. And in that moment, there is not just a physical healing, not just an emotional healing, there's a social healing, 
This is the one that Jesus, the great rabbi, Jesus, the great healer, called his daughter. We thought she was nothing. We thought she was on the edges. We thought she was a leper almost. And yet he calls her daughter. This is the one who for 12 years hasn't been able to follow any of the usual routes to get close to God and discovers that God calls her through a crowd so that he can get close to her. And be her father. Be her father. There's nobody else. And then Jesus gets on with what we think he should be getting on with because we're all human and we think if he wins Jairus' support then everything's great and he rushes off and we don't hear anything more about that woman except this is recorded here to remind us that what Jesus reveals is that God is a father who loves us None of us are missed. None of us are ignored. None of us are on the margins. None of us are forgotten. There's a father who loves us and sees us and knows us. And who says to us, daughter. Who says to us, son. And who calls us out and restores us and makes us whole. Hallelujah. Just turn to somebody next to you and tell them that Jesus loves them and that the Father's with them. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, would you just come and move among us now? Lord, reveal your Father heart to us. Lord, for those who are here right now, feeling that they're forgotten, just speak to them again. Daughter. Son, you're seen, you're remembered. There's not somebody more important that I'm dealing with and you have to wait. You're my child and I love you. In John 14, we read these words. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? At the end, it's a father who prepares his kids for his departure. (coughs) It's a father who invites his kids to look beyond what they can see and to prepare themselves for the world that is to come. He's a perfect father. And in this passage, Jesus reveals to us something of the Father's love. In that the Father... (coughs) is creating a home 
for his kids to be with him forever. Just let it sink in. I love my kids. I love them to bits. I'd do absolutely anything for them. I really would. There is a part of me that's looking forward to them going off to university and I get my house back. <laughs> Some of you have had that experience of children who've flown the nest. Some of you haven't had the child experience yet. But you can relate to this story and you know that there's that kind of natural cycle of things as children grow up and then they leave the home and you've probably experienced it yourself or you're about to experience it or whatever and you kind of make your own way and you create your own life, you create your own home. I want you to see something about this father. Father is creating a heaven. Father is creating perfection. And let me be absolutely clear. If it isn't perfect for him, it's not perfect for anybody. So not only is he making us a place in heaven which is fit for us, it's fit for God. It's his model of perfection that is the standard in which he's using in this creation. God's idea of a perfect eternity is to spend it with you. Do you feel that? God's idea of a perfect eternity is to spend it with you. I love spending time with my kids. Susanna and I try when we can to spend time alone with one of them from time to time and I'll have daddy-daughter time or father-son time and we'll go off and do things. I'll go and stop Nathaniel getting into fights at political rallies. Or We have great kids, we're very, very blessed. But we know the importance of spending time with them individually as well as spending time together as a family. And it's a great thing to do. But our Father in heaven is looking forward to spending eternity with us. The Father's love is revealed in Jesus. Jesus, when we look at him, look at the things that he said, but more than that, look at the way he lived Look at the way he interacted. Just pick your favorite story about Jesus and it reveals the Father's love somehow. Even in those stories where he's warning people um, about them going to hell, <clears throat> even in those stories, he's normally warning people who are really religious and people who think they've got it sorted out and perhaps people who are telling other people that they're not good enough. Those are the ones that he warns about going to hell. <laughs> oh, you be really careful with that. Why? Because they're cutting across this message of God's love. They're bringing condemnation. They're bringing all kinds of things in to this message that Jesus wants us to hear, which is a message of God's love. <coughs> it is God's love that means at the end of time, there'll be a day of judgment because he won't let sin go unpunished. He won't let things go undisciplined. He gives every chance for us in this life to turn to him and follow him. There'll be nobody who faces God on the day of judgment who didn't have a chance to fix their life and get sorted out. There won't be anybody. How God does it is completely up to him. I don't have to figure that out. I just know that that's what he's going to do. <coughs> but Jesus, in the things that he says and in the way that he lives, reveals to us who the Father is. And Philip, when he says, just tell us what the Father's like, Jesus says to him, oh, Three years and you don't get it yet. How can you say that? We've been together this long. 
Don't you know me yet? Didn't you capture it? There's no difference. I'm not here as the friendly face and then God's going to come and be different. I'm not here to show you one thing and God's completely other and you're going to kind of get a surprise on the day of judgment. He's going to use a different measuring stick. It's not, I'm the good cop Jesus and the bad cop father's coming around the corner with his slipper to spank you. Jesus says, don't you get it yet? Me and the Father, we're the same thing. But later he's going to say, me and the Spirit, we're the same thing. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And what is it that Jesus reveals to us? A Father. A Father who loves us. A Father who provides for us. A Father who knows what we need and so gives things to us graciously and generously. A Father who sees us. Father who knows our story. Father who knows what we've gone through and who longs to restore us to be everything he ever hoped that we would be. Now my guess is that some of us just need a touch of the Father's love this morning. So I'm going to invite the musicians and singers to come back. I hope they've got something. If not, you can sing So Will I again if you want. But as we sing, um, I want to invite you, even just where you are, to reach out to him. And uh, like that woman, maybe tentatively come and put yourself at his feet and just hear him saying to you, daughter, son. Maybe like Jairus, there's something really obvious and upfront for you. You just need to come and kneel before him and say what you need. Maybe like Philip, you've been kind of confused about what Father's really like and you need to say, Jesus, just show me again who you are. I've read the prophets, but speak to me again through your son. Give me a revelation of who he is, a fresh revelation of who he is. That I know his love in my life. It may be that you really need someone to pray with you this morning. In which case, uh, at the close of this service, yeah, at the close of the service, I'll be down here, maybe one or two others will join me, and we'll pray for you at the close of the service. But right now, I just want to encourage you to just to come to Jesus as you are, where you are, and allow him to minister his love and his grace straight into your heart as you worship to him and speak to him. So let's do that now.